Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. It's Hugh Hewitt. That music means that the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. I'm joined by Dr. Leon, president of Hillsdale College, and we are finally to book uh, number 12 of the 12 books of the four-volume history of the English-speaking people. And I think it's probably my favorite book, Doctor. Is it your favorite book? Mm, yeah, I don't know. They're all my favorite book. Uh, this is a good one. We're getting into things uh, which was Winston Churchill has contract contacted one remove. Yes. So he, his daddy's involved, and it's the history that's the background to his arrival on the scene. I love so, yeah, at one he, point he refers to a young hussar in the field, uh, and he's of course talking about himself fifty years oh, later. Yeah. It's really remarkable. Yeah, if you see uh, uh, youth pictures of Churchill uh, are, are, in my experience, in my opinion, always very attractive. Sometimes he just looks like a dandy, you know, and the Hussar uniform is really something else. Can we explain to the Steeler fans what a Hussar is? It's a cavalry officer. Uh, You know, they, they go to battle on horses. And well, uh, Churchill, Churchill loved horses, and and uh, play. He was a polo champion. Played till he was in his fifties, and uh, yeah. So there's nothing so good for the inside of a boy as the outside of a horse. Now I, I have told people last week. I've been reading the uh, the River War because that's where we're going after two weeks of this book twelve, and I am amazed at that book. I've never read it before. You were right. It is an amazing book. Yeah, he's, uh, this is a very young man. And, you know, he, he, some of the things we'll talk about today, those are in the news when he's growing up. And uh, he, the way he trained himself, oh, the, our, our listeners and watchers can do this. He trained himself to be a member of parliament in India, mostly, where he also read the best read read great books for the first time. Everybody else took a nap in the afternoon, and he he until the evening shadows proclaimed the hour of polo, he would work. And one of the things he did was he got the annual register, which contains an account of the parliamentary debates in some detail, and he would read the debates, and then he would write his own speech. And uh, and so one of the debates that he worked on was the 1888 Home Rule debate, which is covered in this volume. We will get there. Let's start, though, with the rise of Germany, because he begins there in volume in book 12 of volume four. And he talks about Bismarck and he does so with an ambivalence that is both admiration and also sort of dire. He knows what's coming. Right. He's writing as a veteran in 19. 19- 50 of two wars with Germany. And so when Bismarck enters the scene and launches these three lightning wars, how would you conclude his view of Bismarck is by the end of this chapter? Well, Bismarck was a great man and a great man to Churchill. 
but he was a ruthless man. And, uh, you know, what he did to establish modern Germany was uh, very gutsy. He, he, uh, he wanted to build up the military. He realized that Germany is in the middle of everything and Austria is a decaying old power that with a lot of power. And he's going to have to best them and get the German states into one. And he needs a big army to get it. And the, 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 the uh, parliament wouldn't give it to him. And so he counseled the Kaiser and the Kaiser William I, who was heck of a guy, and they defied the, con the, the parliament and just spent the money. Now, there's a clock ticking when you do something like that. Yep. He, and so he built the military fast with what you could call illegal money, and then he used it. And he conquered six countries, I think, and a very short time, and he signed a peace treaty in the Palace of Versailles, and he had established modern Germany. He humbled the French. And I want to quote Churchill from page 272 in volume 4. An ominous precedent was thus set for what the Germans politely call realpolitik, while Britain and France looked on. Realpolitik means, this is Winston Churchill, so pay attention, folks, to the definition. Realpolitik means that standards of morality and in international affairs could be ignored whenever material advantage might be gained. Uh, what do you think? He also wrote about Bismarck's love of a certain, quote, hard magnanimity, hard magnanimity uh, to the vanquished. What do you think is his view of both um, generosity and defeat and generosity and victory, but ruthlessness and realpolitik? Churchill. Well, he uh, Churchill is ultimately an admirer of Bismarck. Yeah, uh, and and it's it's the fact that this ruthlessness in Bismarck was coupled with restraint. Uh, you know, the, the the definition of a tyrant is somebody who l rules according to his own passions and interests. Well, Bismarck was not that. Bismarck. Uh, treated the French with kid gloves. He, he actually wanted himself to take nothing from them after the war that founded modern Germany. He, uh, he couldn't get away with that because of pressure in Germany. They took Alsace and Lorraine. And Alsace, that's German name, right? And they, they took that. But he didn't even want to do that. And then he then made a treaty both with France and with Russia because he understood that the stability of Europe was crucial to Germany. And he also was not crazy enough to think that uh, they could fight a two-front war against larger powers, Russia a larger power, the coalition that formed against them on the West together larger, and, and win. And so uh, his system didn't survive him very long. He, he served as Chancellor of Germany for 30 years. That is a yeah. great advantage, isn't it? That it's not a, He's not a tyrant, as you just pointed out, because he was subject to many other forces. But when we look at modern China and the Chinese Communist Party, Xi can be there for 30 years, like Bismarck. It's a great advantage to be a Putin and a Xi on the world stage when we change our leaders every four years. Great advantage and a great disadvantage, right? They don't, 
they well because the disadvantage appears right away after he and the Kaiser die, and they're succeeded by what I call the rich kids, the people who just inherited all that, and and uh, and you know, Lord, did they not make profligate decisions? They plunged the world into a disastrous world war, and they thought they could win it fast, and. That was, you know, that was just crazy what they did. Now, this volume doesn't go up to that place, but 1914 is in some ways responsible for all the disaster disaster that are going on right into the current, current day. I mean, there's a mess in the Congress, right? It's because of the First World War. <laughs> it, uh, uh, so, and, the, you know, you can just see that Bismarck didn't do anything like that. He He... And, you know, when it gets to Hitler, you know, who's a rich kid and also crazy, then he does insane things because he called a combination into the field against himself that was simply overwhelming. I want to make sure and, people understand when you say rich kid, he, he personally didn't have wealth when he organized his ride, but he was inheriting the greatness that Germany had assembled for itself prior to yeah. World War One. And it's not so opposite to him because, of course, he, uh, you know, Germany was broken by the First World War and he put it back together. They put it back together under his dominance. Uh, no, I'm talking about the First World War generation. Those are the ones that really did take the assets that, that uh, uh, Bismarck had assembled and wasted them and used them to make a terrible... You know, the cost of the First World War is still being paid. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about specifically that, because, boy, the echo of the guns of World War One are throughout this volume, which runs from about 1860 right up to 1912. And we'll pick up on more of that as we go along. But we'll go back to the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 when we come back. Don't go anywhere, America, because that which happened 150 years ago manages to become very, very tactile and very much within our reach in this very conversation. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. On the new episode of The Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. The confusion is all around us now. I protest about education today, that uh, the debate, almost the entire debate, it's about what we do to the kids to get them the way we want. They think, uh, when they talk about outcomes, ultimately what they mean is, is it the kind of person we want to make? And the we want is crucial. So I fear that and think that that way of thinking makes us prey to the worst forms of the artificial intelligence outcomes. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now, only available on The Larry Arn Show. Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio. And subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu. Welcome back. 
back, America. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest on the Hillsdale Dialogue. We are in volume tw- uh, four, book 12 of the history of the English speaking people. And, and I want to read you a, a paragraph, Dr. Arn, and get you to uh, tell us how it applies to today. Ch- Winston Churchill is writing about the war between Germany and France in 1870. Quote, the French deficient military intelligence had led some French leaders to the belief that their military preparation surpassed Prussia's. The French fought with all their native dash and gallantry, and their infantry weapons were fully up to their enemy standard. But they were outclassed in the new dialectic of war, in transport, in the supply system, above all in staff and training. Do you think he's looking ahead to 1914 and 1939 there? Well, he's, it's, yes, well, that's the, the way of things, right? There's a... Um, a great book to get if you want to read a lot of Winston Churchill. You want to read short things first, some of which are very beautiful. The River War is one of them. Uh, Thoughts and Adventures, and there's a that's a collection of essays, and it's his very best essays. He wrote hundreds of essays, but there are 25 or 30 of them in this, and one of them is called The German Splendor, and uh, he visits the German military maneuvers as a guest when he was first Lord of the Admiralty. And he did it, he'd done it a decade earlier, too. And one of the points he makes is, wow, these guys have gotten better. They move fast. They break down into small groups to escape the power of modern artillery. Their communications are excellent. And, you know, Winston Churchill, he's like Tom Cotton. Um, He knows a lot about war. (laughs) He'd been in it, right? And Mike Gallagher and Mike Pompeo and all those guys, right? And they and so he looked at that German army twice in snapshots and he said, wow, they're getting better. Well, the French were not. And they and, you know, that's what we have to worry about. Our military, by the way, uh, I would guess, but I I don't know. uh, It's been hollowed out. Right. We've been in combat for years and years and years, but we haven't been replacing stuff and we haven't been innovating. And the Chinese, meanwhile, are hungry. And they're, you know, they're likely to fight pretty well when the time comes, I fear. And uh, maybe they'll be like the Russians. That would be refreshing. Well, you know, that's uh, why I brought up this this comment about intelligence. Uh, Churchill value in in his alone years, in his years in in the wilderness, he he put together his own intelligence network because he knew he had to know what Hitler was up to. Because if you don't know what the bad guys are up to, you're not prepared to win. That's it. And and uh, and that intelligence requires something, a kind of feat of understanding. You have to look at the thing dispassionately. You have to let it talk to you. It's what scholars do. It's what great statesmen do. It's what generals do. They actually see what's there and their fears are not in the way and their hopes are not in the way. And and, you know, we we should uh, we should look at uh, China coldly. Right. And think what they're up to and think how to beat them. There's a great article in The Wall Street Journal by Mike Gallagher in recent weeks, and it's about the porcupine. And uh, he says that we the Chinese are going to dominate the East Asian literal. Right. They're going to the Taiwan, Japan, Korea, Philippines. All those countries are very worried about that now. And they're spending money on military stuff and they're getting closer to the United States. That's good. But he says that. A time is coming when we're not going to have caught up there to do that. And so we should build a defense for them and of us that 
relies on drones and missiles and bristles with lots of firepower based on those on land on those places. And uh, that's not the whole of it. But and, you know, David Goldman, I've been told, who's another guy who writes in the Forest and Economic Review, a very brilliant man and knows all this stuff very well. Uh, he says that we, we're not going to be able to do that because the Chinese see us start doing that and they're going to zap us zap those countries, right? Well, I don't know the truth of that, but I do know that we need some way. In a funny way, uh, China has the same problem we do. Uh, 85% of the people live in Eurasia and Africa, which are connected uh, of the world's people. And 15, we're, on, we're over here on this little island in the middle of nowhere. We're the equivalent of England today. And technology has changed so that it's rather like that. You can attack across the oceans fast. Uh, and so we should preserve our position by defending our homeland. Ab but absolutely. Hold on to that but thought. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry on the Hillsdale Dialogue continues. The segments I have most looked forward to in our 13 weeks on the history of the English-speaking people follow. Gladstone and Disraeli. Uh, before I met Dr. Arne, which is a long time ago, in 1978 I was ushered into the study of Richard Nixon in exile in San Clemente, and he sent me out to the library to pick up Blake's Disraeli, and he told me to read that book. So the first book that Richard Nixon ever recommended to me was Disraeli by William Blake, and it, I've reread it four or five different times. I quote part of it from memory without too much difficulty and get most of it right. And here they are in Churchill's eyes, Gladstone and Disraeli. And uh, Dr. Arn, the overview, the two great parliamentarians in alternation ruled the land from 1868 to 1885. That's really remarkable. Oh, yeah. And they were they're, they're very different. You know, uh, Gladstone was uh, vigorous and his, his hobby was chopping down trees. Uh, Churchill's father made a wonderful speech called the Chips Speech because there was a report in the paper that Gladstone invited some working men to come and watch him chop down a tree. And then he gave them chips from the fallen tree. And that's the theme of the speech is that's what Gladstone has to offer the working man, chips. Uh, and, and Disraeli was precious and sophisticated and uh, urbane and he was not a assertive manly man uh, and in their different ways they were of course very assertive man manly men and they and they took turns a lot uh, uh, the Tories went into eclipse under Disraeli in part because of electoral reform they widened the franchise and the Tories did that. And that was a great thing to do. These, these uh, are not two men who get along. Uh, if I had time, I would read pages 283 to 284. They hate each other. And Disraeli yeah. at one point, I want you to explain this to me, what you think it means. He says, the one thing that was sure about Gladstone, never a gentleman. What's that mean? <laughs> well, he was a fighter. Uh... You know, he was very eloquent, very forceful, 
but never a gentleman. I don't know what that means. I don't. I don't. Uh, I, I, I guess it must mean that he never pulled his punches. Uh, yeah, but, I, I, maybe he never respected the other side. Do gentlemen and gentlewomen at least understand the other side? Because Gladstone strikes me as being uh, almost Trumpian in his disdain for his enemies. Uh, that's a fair point. Uh, he, you have to remember about Gladstone that he was on the other side some in his life, right? Uh, and so maybe that's a sign of his extremism. He hated them when he left them. <laughs> I got a quote on page 285. Nothing, this is Winston Churchill, nothing created more bitterness between them than Gladstone's conviction that Disraeli had captured the Queen for the Conservative Party. It endangered the Constitution by the unscrupulous use of his personal charm. You know, that that is... You know, Gladstone is is envious there of Disraeli's ability to flatter. Yeah, glad, you know, I mean, first of all, Queen Victoria was a very remarkable woman. You know, she's her rival in some respects is Elizabeth II, who died lately. Um, and so, you know, she was a woman. She was feminine. She was strong, too. And so Gladstone never got on with her. And it, we were coming, we're coming to the days where the, key, the monarch is not an independent force in politics, but those days are not fully over yet. And so Gladstone, you know, that's something of his character, right? Whatever, this fierceness, just imagine him wielding an ax as a publicity stunt, you know? He loved to go out and whack the heck out of a big old tree. And you so, can also go out and with the ladies of the night, not consort with them, but preach to them. He's a very yeah. fervent Christian. Very fervent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, he has an unfortunate history about slavery. Yes. He owns them and he never got rid of them. Uh, but uh, he, yeah, so there are many problems with Gladstone and uh, not, not so many with Disraeli, I think, but they're both very great figures, and Gladstone uh, was ahead of his time in the thing that cost him the most, because he tried to make a settlement with Ireland. And you know, we're going to spend most of next week talking about Ireland because it's so inextricably bound up with what happens to Imperial Great Britain that we cannot not do so. But I want to spend a moment on the Gladstone cabinet of 1868 to 1874, and then Disraeli. Gladstone calls that cabinet one of the best instruments of government that was ever constructed. Launched in Churchill's term, a long-delayed avalanche of reform, including an Education Act, and this, I loved it, low taxation. Gladstone greatly distressed that he didn't get rid of the income tax. The liberals of the 1800s are not the liberals of today, Dr. Art. Well, uh, you, you would certainly swap the liberals of 1800 for the Democrats, also for the Republicans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> there are no imperialists left, right? We can't swap. There are no, there's nobody who wants what Disraeli wanted. Although I must say, I was when I was reading this, I pointed out to my son, Disraeli bought the Suez Canal. Isn't that a little bit like when Trump tried to buy Greenland? And he said, wouldn't that have been a great thing? And indeed, it would have been a great thing if it had happened. Sure. I mean, if Greenland's for sale, let's go buy it. It, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, and see, there was a, just remember, this is the peak of one of the greatest forces in human history. The British reached their peak on the eve of the First World War. And then they passed it, uh, you know, because that was disastrous. And then we come along, too, right? And that's already starting to happen in the 19th century. It's just that we are a benignant force. I, I hope the same thing for India, by the way. I, uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I would, I, if, uh, uh, when Bill Clinton, you know, we've had so many disasters uh, in the Oval Office, but uh, when he was elected president, he was going to go to Japan and uh, uh, the Chinese said he couldn't come to Beijing if he went to Tokyo first. And so he canceled Tokyo. And what I, th I wrote an article at the time, I think, if I remember right. And, it's, and I said in the article, he should uh, cancel Beijing and he should add Delhi. He should go to those two places, right? Because they have elected governments. Yes. And that makes a difference, right? And they're and you know the Indians are very numerous and they're making great progress uh, economically and health and a hundred other things, and the caste system is not what it was. It's better now, uh, and so yeah, it. Uh, a naval officer uh, of my acquaintance tells me that the Indian Navy is stretching, and that their aviators are not yet to the level of the American, the British, and the Israeli aviators. But they're getting there and they might be as good as the Chinese and their submarines are pretty good. So maybe I hadn't even thought about that in this context. But there is, you know, the Thucydides trap is that a rising power inevitably goes to war with the existing power. But that didn't happen when the Americans rose up because both the Americans and the Brits came close in this volume. Right. They come close in Venezuela, but they avoid yeah. it. That's right. And see, if you this this volume ends before uh, the loss of the British Empire in India, uh, which happened coincident with the Second World War, pretty much. Um, but Churchill had hopes for India and and uh, his hope was that they would become a self-governing people like the Australians and the New Zealanders. <laughs> and they're well on their way to that now. Now, the one thing that I want to say on behalf of Gladstone is he reformed the, the, the aristocratic admission to Oxford and Cambridge, and he was a believer in meritocracy. Hillsdale's very much that way. You're a meritocracy still. So that's a good thing, isn't it, for democracies eventually to get to the point where we have merit. But now in the university, with a few exceptions, Hillsdale, the Lantern in the North, it's not about merit anymore, Dr. Arndt. Uh, in fact, they didn't even reveal the Thomas Jefferson High School in Northern Virginia did not announce their National Merit Scholars until after the application deadlines closed 
because they did not want to advantage them against their classmates in the competition for entry into prestigious colleges. What do you make of that? <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, there's, this, this is an old problem, right? Uh, there's a, uh, a play by Aristophanes called the Ecclesia Zeusi, the Assembly of Women. And uh, it's equality run rampant. And it ends with some old women ripping apart a young couple in love because the law is that you have to fool around with the old women first. Oh. And, uh, and so look, it, it, uh, I like to say everybody's smart at Hillsdale college and you need to be right. It's, it's a noggin thing. Uh, but because it's hard, because it's hard, it's right? Hard. It's, 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 everybody's not as smart as everybody else. Right. There's a top 10 and, you know, they're smart. They're real smart. And also they work hard because they, you don't you, you don't actually want uh, to say to any young people like I, I don't like these tests, although they indicate a lot because young people can despair and they shouldn't. But uh, because, you know, if you live your life right, you'll know a lot more, a huge difference. And you'll be smarter than if you don't. And, and, and look at the two of us. I mean, I'm from a little town in Ohio and you're from Arkansas. And we're doing a fancy dancy radio program because America is open to people who work hard. I really do believe yeah. that. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, it's, it's still true that, uh, you know, I'm very blessed. I had somebody say to me one time. Can you hear the music? You have to wait. You have to wait right there. I'll be right back, America. Dr. Larry Arnold is going to tell us why he's very blessed right after this. The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In the Exodus story, Hillsdale College professor of English Justin Jackson picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in the Exodus story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash new course. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E, hillsdale.edu slash new course. Welcome back to the final segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. We're talking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, about the uh, 12th book, the first half of the 12th book. Dr. Arn, we went to break. You said you were very blessed, and we were talking about meritocracy. Why is that? Well, I had a business consultant say to me one time that I was not sufficiently interested in organization. I cared about talent. And I said, okay, Constitution of the United States, is that a form of organization? And then later he said, yeah, I figured out what the thing is with you. 
in corporations, they're always trying to economize on talent. They're trying to make it so that the mediocre can do the job. Ah. Whereas you are awash in talent. And I said, you think that's an accident? <laughs> I said, really? It, uh, so, yeah, that that's... Uh, and, you know, what was the advantage of Britain among aristocratic countries? Oh, I, I was, have an answer. That Disraeli, a Jew, could become the prime minister. That was the advantage it, of Great Britain. It was open, yes. right? It was open. And that's that's the thing. And so, and you need everybody. Uh, uh, here, here's something really beautiful that Winston Churchill wrote early in his career, because he sponsored the legislation to reduce the power of the House of Lords. And, uh, and Lord Curzon, who was a very stiff man, very talented man, he said that, Civilization is the work of aristocracies. And Churchill answers that. It's, it's really, you know, young man, by the way, Churchill was, and Curzon was a great, wonderful man. Uh, I'll paraphrase, he says. Uh, he says, uh, it's nearer to truth to say that carrying aristocracy is the work of civilization. Because Lord, <laughs> because Lord Curzon is not, when he says aristocracy, he does not mean the best. He does not mean the strongest, the most intelligent, the highest minded. He means the well-born, you see. Whereas democracy is the association of us all in the leadership of the best. Now that's, and uh, that, you know. That allows for Isaiah Disraeli to convert and to bring his son to the, to the Berlin, what do they call it? The Congress of Berlin, where J Bismarck, who we began the hour talking about, Bismarck at the end of it, after all the world's problems are settled for 30 years, looks at the Israeli and says, they're all Juden, the old Jew, he is the man. Because he got mm -hmm. Cyprus, he got the Turks to back off, he got the Russians to retreat, he made it all happen, and Bismarck, who really is the man, is saying, there is the man. And that's because Great Britain was open to him. Yeah, that's right. And they, and you know, they, they, uh, uh, in the end, by the way, the proper way to govern humans is to govern by consent. Because come to find out, people do what they want to do better than they do what they don't. And so you need a way, I mean, we, we talked last week about the two weeks ago, however long it goes ago, about the mess in the Congress, right? Well, they're trying to figure out legitimacy. And oh, interesting. That's, break, that's breaking down in America, right? And the, oh, the claim, you know, that, the claims of... That is the best the, thing that could be said about the 20. I'm glad you're yeah. not saying it in the middle of the debate because they would claim it, they would, they would grab that and use it as a cloak. Because that's actually yeah, well, the highest thing they could be doing. That, well, I, you know, and I think it is. I, I like, I liked, see, we've, we've gotten this entire, we don't, you know, you, you should try to learn more about radio. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I can't run a committee of three people, uh, but I can run a radio show. He runs 800 people in a college that's been around for 150 years. And he's, <laughs> it's very funny. So, I mean, 
we taped this silly thing in the middle of a great fight with no idea how it was going to go out, come out. And, and so it's probably just radical foolishness. But now let's look back on it. <laughs> because we always study history because what do you like to say? History's finished. So Yeah, it's not finished yet. But uh, uh, they, you know, in other words, the claim, the proper claim of authority in America always comes from consent, right? And so... What these points are about that they were they've been fighting about, and I'm glad they're fighting about them, is that they have delegated to people who do not enjoy the blessing of consent. And you know, uh, Gosh, the Constitution. That is ex- that. Yeah. We're out of time. We're going to come back. That is exactly the problem with the administrative state: is that no that's one it. is consented to having their property seized by bureaucrats from the EPA. Because it's got a ditch on it that occasionally has water in it. Somehow that's tied up with the history of the English-speaking people, and we'll continue it next week. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are, con- are found at hillsdale.edu. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.